The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn now to Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Let us hear the word of God. If you were dead in their trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passion of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that we, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Please pray with me. Lord God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be accepted in your sight, we pray, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. It is indeed my delight to uh, join with you this evening and open up the Word of God to the people of God. There is no higher privilege on this planet, I don't think, than to be invited to open up the Word of the living, eternal, sovereign God to his children. I had the privilege of doing that for some 40-plus years. It was my love. It was my passion. It was my pure joy. Having said that, though, I'm not really sure why I am here tonight. Now, I understand the plan with the retirement of Dr. Rogers. Usually the other staff, one of them would preach the evening service. And obviously you can only uh, spread the work so thin. The staff has been doing a wonderful job. And uh, I think Westminster has every reason to be very delighted in in that. But I also know there are many other ministers. They've had ministers from the uh, Presbytery, Susquehanna Valley Presbytery, and they have come and have been here on evenings and have wonderful sermons. And even in-house, there are are many, many wonderful teachers. 
retired pastors. And I sort of scratch my head and say, why, why me? Why am I here? But you know, I've, I've asked that question about something else. Why me? Why me? And that is why, before the foundation of this world, did God cho- choose me to be holy and blameless in his sight? Why did God choose me to be his sons? Why did God choose me? Why me? I'm sure some of you have asked yourself the same question. Why, why me? Why, before the foundation of the world, did God call me to be his child? Why, before the beginning of time, did God call me to be holy and blameless in his sight? Why me? Well, as we read into Ephesians 2, we don't have to wait too long for the answer to that question, because I believe it is there in verse 4, where we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, That's the why. Now, we could probably give an answer to that question that was more complicated. And there is no doubt that we could give an answer to that question that would sound more theological. Throw in some heavy theological words. But I think God wants us to understand it very simply. Yes, a profound question indeed, but very simply. It is because of his great love for us. My friends, in uh, Deuteronomy 7-7, which I delight to turn to many times, we read there, in, starting in verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people to be his treasured possessions out of all the people who on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set you, set his love on you. He has chosen you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. My friends, it's simply God has called you. God has chosen you. Because he loves you. One of my favorite passages, I know the preacher has to be careful saying that. See, the truth squad is here tonight. Some dear, dear folks that I had the privilege of serving as pastor, and now I have the privilege of calling them friends. And so if you want to find out whether things are are true or not, just talk to them after the service. One of my favorite texts, though, is Exodus 33 where Moses asked God if he may see his glory. You all know the passage. And Moses says, no, you cannot see my glory, but I will have my goodness pass before you and, and my name, the Lord. And then right after that, we read something that might seem strange because what God says, I will have grace upon those that will have, I will have grace and I will have mercy upon those I will have mercy My friends, God is above all else sovereign. And our sovereign God is truly 
unique in the fact that he is free. He is totally, utterly free. Let's turn to our text. And what I want to do tonight is just look at a brief introduction in verses 1 through 3. And then we go into the last seven verses of the text and we will see four things there. In the introduction, Paul is telling his recipient of the letter who he's writing to. And here in Ephesians 2, in the first three verses, he's telling them there how they once were. Now, he does almost the same thing in Ephesians 1, if you have your Bibles, if you want to uh, skip back to that, because he's also writing to those that are the recipients of the letter there. But in the first verse of Ephesians 1, what he's saying, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What he does there in Ephesians 1 as, as he talks about the recipient of the letter, he tells them there, he describes them there, of how they are now in Christ. How they are now that they have taken off the old flesh and put on the new flesh. How God has changed their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Where in the opening of Ephesians 2, Paul refers them as what they are, what they were before Christ before Christ changed their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Before that, you were dead in your sin. You were enslaved to the prince of this world, and you were children of wrath. That's who you were before Christ came and and shed his light and his grace into your lives. You were dead in sin, You were enslaved to the prince of this world and you were objects of God's wrath. That is the very sin from which we are set free in Jesus Christ. I'm going to share four things tonight. First of all, because of his great love for us, we will live. Because of his great love for us, we are saved. Because of his great love for us, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. And because of his great love for us, God has ordained, predestined, that we walk in good works that he has created for us to do so. Because of God's great love for us, you will live. Is there a greater need in our lives than knowing that we will live again. No one has stood at the casket of a friend, a family member, and not known that great need, that they will live. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, we read that in Adam all have died, and in Christ all have been made alive. It is through the redemptive power and grace of Jesus Christ that we will live. As I look across the room tonight, I would suspect that in 50 years from now, not many of us will be here, will we? 
Not many of all will be here. I won't tell you how old I'll be in 50 years because then some of you can figure out how, how old I am now. 100 years from now, probably the only ones in the building that will be alive, if there's any infants somewhere else or small children somewhere else, they, they stand a chance. There is no greater need than knowing we will live. In 1994, the month of September, within a course of a week, I had two funerals for 14-year-old teenagers. The one, Giles, had been killed over Labor Day weekend in an all-terrain vehicle in the mountains, and Eleanor had lost the battle with cancer. I can remember very clearly Labor Day late afternoon, we got a knock at our door, which was extremely rare. An unannounced guest was, was extremely rare for us. It, it was something they would at least call for us if they wanted to talk or something like that. But there were Giles' grandparents, and you knew in a moment things were not right. We invited them in, and we learned the news that Giles was no longer alive. Eleanor's family had been a part of Bellevue Church, had moved off to the mountains, but because of her treatment was down at DuPont Hospital in Wilmington, they would come back very frequently and I got to see them. They had joined a small uh, a church in the mountains, retired pastor, talked to him once or twice. He had no problem with me ministering to the family. And so I also had the funeral for Eleanor that same week. There is no greater need for those parents than that their child would live again. But because of his great love for us, we will live. We who are in Christ will live this day and we will live forever. I'm sure you are all familiar in John chapter 11, the story of Mary and Martha and Jesus and Lazarus. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were up in Galilee. They had gotten the word that their friend uh, Lazarus was gravely ill. The disciples thought that they would take off immediately and return to uh, Bethany. But remember, Jesus waited some two days, and finally they, he led the disciples down to Bethany. When they were still outside the village, still outside the house, uh, Martha got word that Jesus was there. And she ran to him, and remember what she said to him? Of course she did. She said to him, Oh, Master, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. If you had only been here four days ago, my brother would not have died. If you had only been here in Bethany, my brother would not have died. Do you remember the words of Jesus to Martha? His next words were this. Your brother will rise again. And then Martha goes off quoting first century Jewish theology. I know my brother will rise again at the end of the times in the great resurrection. That's what they had been taught. No, Martha. Jesus is meeting you at your very point of greatest need. Your brother will live. And then in verse 25 of that chapter, Jesus not talking about the impending resurrection of Lazarus, but talking about his own resurrection says what? 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes me will live even though he die. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Because of his great love for us, my friends, you who are in Christ will live. Because of his great love for us, we will be saved. We read there in verse um, verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And, and then also down in verse 8, and by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. By grace you have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from being dead in sin. Being saved from the evil one. Being saved from the wrath of God. Being saved to live again. I remember um, early in my ministry at Bellevue, and this did not take place at Bellevue, Oh, am I glad? You know, I always said that uh, retirement has pluses and minuses. And I personally think that the pluses far outweigh the minuses. But one of the minuses of retirement is that whole host of sermon illustrations you have from your first church that you can't use. You know, and then once you're retired, you can go and say, well, in my first church, there was this lady. Or in my first church, there was this man. This is not about anyone in my first church. I actually, I was um, at a meeting, presbytery meeting, presbytery committee meeting, and I had just um, literally gone through downtown Coatesville. I had lived in Gap for about a year, but there's really no reason when you live in Gap to go through downtown Coatesville. Maybe there's no reason ever to go through downtown Coatesville. I don't know. But... um, you know, there's a bypass, Exton, get you around town. But I went, I, just that day, it was, it was a Monday, and what I did many Mondays is just go out and get lost so that I would know where I was living and I would know the place. And even after a couple of years, I would just go out and drive and get lost. Anyway, I was just telling this lady at this meeting who I probably hardly knew that I was, I was in Coatesville this afternoon. And has she ever seen, ever seen the Coatesville Presbyterian Church? And I was amazed. I was driving down Coatesville, and there was the church, and there's a big neon sign. And you know what it says? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And you know what she told me? She whispered, maybe because she didn't want the others to hear, that's not really a Presbyterian church. (laughs) And I... said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, they believe a lot of different things than most of us. I did not say to her, and I am convicted even standing here this day, but it's a Christian church, isn't it? It's a Christian church. Because we know that it is only in Jesus Christ in Christ alone, that we are saved. My friends, because of great, God's great love for us, we have been saved.
And the text tells us this is not of our own doing. This is not of works. We cannot boast. This is a free gift of the free God. We know that it is in, by grace alone. It is by faith alone. It is in Christ alone. It is in his word alone. And for the glory of God alone that we are saved. But people will still come up to me and say to me, if anyone has lived a life who deserves to go to heaven, this person has. I've learned enough to simply respond. Nobody has earned or lived a life worthy enough to go to heaven. It's only by God's grace. But you know what, my friends? I think if we are honest with ourselves, honest with ourselves, many of us still throw that in there, don't we? We know it's by grace alone we're saved. But there's something about ourselves that want us to say, yes, but God... Have you, have you seen my resume? You know, have you seen my resume? Have, have you seen all that I've done for the church of Jesus Christ? Have you seen all that I've given to the church of Jesus Christ? Do you see all the Sunday school classes I've taught in the church of Jesus Christ? I have been faithful to my wife for all these years. I've been a loving father to my... Do you, do you see all of this? Rubbish. It is by grace alone we are saved, lest any man should boast. My friends, because of his great love for us, we will live. Because of his great love for us, we are saved. And then as we go on in the text, we see it's because of his great love for us that we have been seated with Christ. We have been seated in Christ in the heavenly places. Often ask the question, don't we, when, when, when did the church start? You've, you've got to be careful there because I have found myself at some times, at some levels, being guilty of, uh, of maybe dumbing that down just a little bit. I, what I mean by that, when I'm, when I'm teaching confirmation class, I'll probably never be asked to preach again, but when I'm teaching confirmation class, I, I was sometimes well, I tell the children, you know, the church was born at Pentecost. You know, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there they were that day. They had waited. Jesus had risen from the tomb and everything else. But then you always have to put a, you know, a, just a little X, but God's always had a people. So the church has always been, but it was just different the day of Pentecost. And then I could also say the church was born... In, we see in Ephesians 1, Hebrews, and see, I, I couldn't preach the um, Ephesians series without saying something about the Hebrews series that the uh, pastors are now doing. Ephesians 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the wonder word of his power, after making purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand on the majesty on high. So I think we could say the church began after Jesus made purifications for his sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We have been seated with Christ. Many people think that to begin the Christian life is to walk with Jesus. I think scripture teaches us that to begin the Christian life is to be seated with Jesus. Watchman Nee, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, um, Chinese teacher, theologian, writer, um, was born in uh, 1903, died in 1972. Um, just one paragraph from his book, Sit, Walk, and Stand. And if you're not familiar with it, um, he, he lays this down as the progression of the Christian life. First thing we're to do, first thing we're taught to do is sit. You are seated in Christ. Then we walk, just as a toddler can sit first, then they can walk. And then just as a toddler then can't uh, stand until they've walked, the last thing a toddler can really do is stand, okay? So this is his summary of Ephesians, where in the second chapter, we are told that we have been seated with Christ. In the fourth chapter, we are told we are to walk with Christ. In the sixth chapter, we are to stand against the darts of the evil one. Just to get back to the simple point, most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit but that is the reverse of the true order. Our natural reason says, if we do not walk, how can we ever reach the goal? What can we obtain without effort? How can we ever get anywhere if we do not move? If at the onset we try to do anything, we get nothing. If we seek to obtain something, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. The Ephesians, thus Ephesians opens with the statement that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens and places us in Christ. We are seated in Christ. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. We are seated in Christ. There is no work on our part when you're seated in that chair, it's not you holding yourself up. It's completely the work of the chair itself. Finally, it is because of God's great love for us that we will live. It is because of God's great love for us that we are saved. It is because of God's great love for us that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. And it is because of God's great, for 
God's great love for us that we have been predestined to walk in the steps that God has made for us to walk in. Now, it seems rather odd, doesn't it? After having just made such a case that we are saved by works alone, nothing we do by grace alone, nothing in thy hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That now when we get to Ephesians 2.10, we read, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for beforehand that you, we should walk in them. I think what it, it reminds me of in our development, we have a, a portion of the development that is uh, a woods, we call it. it. It's just, I mean, it's not that big. But when the development was uh, sold and broken up for housing, part of the agreement is houses would not go in that area. So it's a little delightful place to walk through. I like to walk through it, especially after it has snowed, especially after someone else has walked through it. So you get the image. It's easier to walk through the snow if you're not the first ones, because someone else has walked through it for you. Well, that's the image I get here of, of what Paul is saying, that we are to walk in the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do, that they are, they are not good works that we somehow create on our own, but God has created them for us. Several things, I think, need to be remembered here. First of all, works that we do that are not appointed by God for us to do are rubbish. They're useless. And, and every work that is done that God has called us to do in the end will bring glory to him. I was very blessed as pastor of Bellevue over the years to have uh, be surrounded by good musicians. Um, I am, am not a musician. I cannot sing. You would not want me to sing. But I love music, and I've always loved music. So I, I, I thank God for giving me the appreciation of music, even though I'm not a musician. And I've loved to talk to different folks that's been part of our uh, ministry at Bellevue that, that work uh, mostly then in, in public school and um, work at different things and marching band leaders. Our kids were both in marching band. And just, you know, just amazes me how, how kids can march in marching band. But then one, one day I thought, you know, it's really not that hard. It's just a matter of, of learning, having them learn a song to play, going out on the field, someone blowing the whistle, and just have the kids start moving. Just start to move. And the only rules are is don't hit anybody, okay? And if you're going to hit somebody with your horn, you bow down and let your, their horn go under them and not over them, you know? I mean, what, you know, is it really, is it really that hard? Of course, I'm being absurd. What, what has amazed me over the years is when I talk to musicians and marching band leaders that some will write their own script how they do that is beyond me. And some you can, you can order and, and, and uh, so the kids know where to go and everything else, you know. At the end, of the, the end of the evening, we all applaud for the kids. They've done a great job. But when you think about it for a moment, 
who, whose glory is it? Whose glory is it? It's the author of the script. It's those steps that have been planned ahead of time. We have been called by God to do his good works that he has planned from the foundation of the world that we would be walking in them. Just let me... um, bring all of this together that we are it is because of God's great love that we will live all those that are in Christ it is because great love that we will be saved all those whom God turns their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh and we are in Christ it is all those it is because of God's great love for us that we will be seated with Christ in the heavenly realm and all of the weight of, of our own bearing is gone. It is because of his great love for us that God has created good works for us to walk in. Think back in the, back in the 60s, maybe 70s. Oh, 70s. There was a song by uh, Kurt Kreiser, master designer, does it, no, see, I'm dividing the crowd pretty good, yeah. Um, just read a couple stanzas. Cotton candy clouds, so fluffy and white. Who put them there in a sky of deep blue? Or do you just happen to float along, pretty and white in a sky of so blue, so blue, sky so blue? Tall mountain, deep valley, fast river, cool stream, show grandeur and majesty in some grand scheme. All these wonders that we behold are only a part. It cannot be told, be told, cannot be told. And then if you want to hear the most absurd line of it all, master designer, Whoever you are. Whoever you are. My friends, that's blasphemy. That is blasphemy. Because we know who the master designer is. He is the eternal God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one that has set his love upon you not because you are more numerous, not because you are the fewest, but because God is free and God in his freedom has chosen you. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us pray. Father God, as we gather this Sabbath Eve, We thank you that we can gather with your people. We thank we can gather to worship you, to sing the praises of Jesus Christ. But most of all tonight, we thank you that we can gather knowing who you are and giving you thanks and praise 
for calling us undeserving, unwilling, objects of wrath, but through your perfect and full grace, objects of your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.